you don't know from the front to the back where where your data is being moved from disk to screen, if you will, and all the systems it passes through and at what volume, what pace, what velocity, if you would, of that data. If you don't know that and understand it, how do you map and correlate a problem in the website or a problem in the e-commerce system or in banking, a problem in a branch, maybe, with where that data is originally sourced from and know, A, if something goes wrong, where in that IT chain it's gone wrong, but more to the point, how do you direct the right robotic process to make the necessary change that may manifest itself as a problem in one place, but the source of that problem is somewhere completely different. Welcome to Cloud Talk. My name is Jeff Deverter, the host here. Now, today's the first to Cloud Talk because we've invited Simon Bennett, the CTO for Rackspace EMEA region, to come in and provide, well, a bit of a rebuttal to one of the articles that we posted over on solve.rackspace.com. And it was an article extolling the virtues of RPA. And apparently, we might not have told the complete story. Now, of course, make sure you stick around to the end There's always something fun that happens after the interview. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking a sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just gonna tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Deverter. So um, so you're a relatively new racker in the grand scheme of things, although now you've been here enough months that we'll call you an old school racker. But, uh, but, but tell us your title and how long you've been here and that sort of thing. No worries, so uh, I've been here six months now it feels a lot longer but uh six months and i've managed to join the company via zoom worked and met everyone via various web media and my title is um cto for emir so also looking after all things within the emir region which is a, a nice big region to look after and i've also had the pleasure of looking after all the solution architects and solution directors now as well across the region which is why you don't sleep a lot. So I'm glad that you are doing that job. So the first time we met, you scheduled some time for us to get to know one another. And, uh, and up comes your Zoom window, not using a fancy background. And I was struck by the room that you're in. Tell me, tell me where you are, because I think it's really interesting. Uh, no problem at all. So, so I live around 100 miles west of London in what's known as the Cots, edge of the Cotswolds in a old cottage, which was a farm laborer's cottage and grain store built in around 1775. So it's pretty old. Uh, it's no foundations for those people that um, are interested in these things. It's built upon clay. So the whole house moves with the ground as the ground moves, which means you get used to cracks, you get used to creaking buildings, but it's really interesting to live in. You know, um, in America, we uh, we're, we can see a little bit more, we can be a little myopic in our little worlds and we get pretty excited when something is uh, 50 years old or 100 years old. Well, your house is older than our nation. So um, congratulations to that. Well, our conversation today really came about because we put an article out on uh, the Solve website over here at Rackspace, solve.rackspace.com, where we put out, I think, some really good content. But you raised your hand and said, 
you're not telling the whole story. And that article was uh, was extolling the virtues of uh, robotic process automation, RPA, one of my favorite things to study these days, by the way. And uh, and so we had a conversation. Uh, you got some really good points. And so we thought, what better way to um, to air those out than to get on on the podcast and uh, discuss and debate. So. Um, the essence of the articles um, said, if I were going to sum up a couple of pages and said, hey, RPA is great. It is going to bring incredible benefits to uh, to enterprises and to businesses in helping save tens of thousands of hours. And isn't that great? The world is going to be wonderful. Have a nice day. Let's go write another article. That's kind of the sum of it, wouldn't you say? Uh, absolutely. And the, I think the real point in that is it's an article that tells one end of a story. Um, I'd like to tell the other end of the story and See where we take see where we take that conversation. All right, but I think it's also important because your opinions are um, well founded because they're founded in experience. Now, those who can't see, um, we both share a common trait, and that is it's a little more gray uh, <laughs> than, it, than it used to be. And what that ultimately means is there are tens of years behind us in in war wounds. So, why don't you walk us through your career real quick, just so we have a context, not just of where Simon Bennett lives, but who Simon Bennett is. Hey, so great. Um, so I think having having a very long career in IT, um, now probably in just over 30 years of doing that, I started my IT career working for customers. So I worked with um, some major insurers and I also worked with uh, Lloyds of London, the international shipping insurer. So I learned and understood um, technology from a customer point of view before working for um, a small company called Sequent Computer Systems based out of um, Portland in Oregon, uh, and then ended up, uh, they were bought by IBM. So I ended up in IBM, which um, I didn't join. I was acquired um, <laughs> along with many thousands of people into IBM. But what I learned from that move from being customer side to being supplier side is really what it takes to sit both sides of the table. And that give me, gave me quite an interesting perspective when looking at you know problems that customers face because I'd been there, I'd sat that other side and I'd seen essentially how um, suppliers sell solutions to customers, which I think gives me a, an interesting insight when um, designing solutions now in the future. Um, my career in IBM was very varied. I managed lots of consultants for a while. I also undertook some several roles in technical business development and worked as an on-site CTO for some customers. Although I was an IBM employee, I sat for several years sitting customer side as a paid-for CTO really sitting the other side of IBM um, you know, as a jobbing CTO. Well, just to jump in, I think that, you know, having that type of experience is, it's invaluable to be able to understand both sides of it, whether you are on, I'll call it the partner vendor side, recommending solutions, or you're on the receiving side of that. To have an appreciation of the business who is going to ultimately receive this service is, um, it, it's absolutely invaluable. It gives you the perspective of um, of what needs are on the other side of listening even to communication styles and knowing what questions to ask and even help prod if you're on the partner side to be able to make sure that um, that that you're communicating effectively of exactly what you're doing what the benefits are in an in an honest and transparent way so that you don't end up in that scenario like so many are of of signing the contract and all of a sudden what was sold is not necessarily what was received. Uh, absolutely. I think the key thing for me has always been customers want to buy business solutions or business outcomes. Customers don't really care about the technology anymore. They just expect it to work. And if you think about it, 
the transformation now is technologists used to buy IT solutions. That Those solutions are now bought by the business directly. So you've now got to bear in mind and talk in the language of business, the language of industry, much more than the language of technology. And I think that's a really important change and distinction now. So understanding your customer, their business they're in, and their own challenges in their language is an imperative part of that process. Well, it's a great point because, and we're going to get into this a little bit later because it speaks to what what um, the business and IT and partner relationships were, I'll call it even 10 years ago and beyond, um, because you had business that sat very clearly on one side. You had IT inside of that organization that had a nice big brick wall, a lot of times right in between. And it was IT's job to do the interpretation of what business needed and then effectively communicate that and solve it. So IT and the partner could speak in tech. They didn't necessarily have to speak in business outcomes because they could just map requirements. But that world has changed, and that's that's going to become much more evident as our conversation progresses. Uh, absolutely. I think that's a really, really essential part of it. That dynamic has changed enormously. And as you've said, the language has changed as a consequence. Well, so there you are with IBM. Um, let's bridge the gap uh, up to Rackspace. So... Um, I'd, I'd followed Rackspace for a while. I knew a few people that work, worked here. And I think what, what, what appealed to me more than anything was, you know, Rackspace being the multi-cloud company, mm. not being tied or wedded to one cloud provider, but also having its history of, you know, being space in a rack from many moons ago to now being, you know, that whole process of OpenStack and NASA engineering heritage, which really appealed to me as a an architect and a designer of things, moving into the fact that we can, without fear or favor, talk to a customer about any hyperscaler or a private cloud solution and genuinely recommend the right solution for the customer in their circumstances. And I think the ability to do that sets Rackspace apart from many of the traditional SIs and other people. And that's what really appealed to me in terms of joining. That's awesome. So not to be salesy, but I really do appreciate the fact that you've brought that level of acumen of what is the business problem it's trying to be solved, and then we'll figure out the right tech. And then that's really what you yeah. aspire to in, in any customer partner engagement. And by the way, I keep using the word partner because that, you know, if we're speaking to IT decision makers out there, don't look for a vendor. Vendors just are going to schlep some technology or direction. Find somebody who can partner up on those outcomes. Yeah. And more to the point, Jeff, a trusted partner. You've uh -huh. got to earn the trust. But being trusted and understood that you're going to work without fear or favor, I think, is imperative. And that once you've got that trust and you can develop that relationship, I think that really helps explore great new ideas and innovate. Okay, so so with this great background, you come to Rackspace, you're here for six uh, for six months, you read this article and realize that if we were to go back and use you know, kind of the analogy of what we're talking about is we, we've kind of shy, we've kind of sold some shiny tech and not necessarily sold the entire experience here. So let's, you know, we, I've, I've already stated kind of in, in brief what the article was. What are we missing? What did what did we not call out? So um, the article talks a lot about robotic processes and how when, when a problem is found, you can use a robotic process to fix it using a virtual engineer rather than a human being. And that's great when you know what the problem is. But so often now with the, the IT and the solutions that exist spanning data centers, private cloud and public cloud, what may be seen as a problem with a customer facing website or a mobile phone app may manifest itself somewhere much further back within the IT solution. And being able to find the source of the problem rather than just treat the symptom, is key to understanding how you can 
actually fix the problem in the first place and whether a robotic process doesn't necessarily fix a poorly performing website when actually the problem is grabbing data out of a database somewhere completely different. And unless you know where that data comes from, how do you know which robotic process to use and why? That's right. Okay, so so many things to unpack there. It's a really um, uh, powerful statement. Let's start with, you know, in order to to do that level to, to put uh, of automation, to put the robots in place to, to fetch the data, uh, you, you have to understand the data chain and 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 be able to discover that out. Of course, this would start in the discovery phase of, of figuring out how to put this together. But that's that's not for the faint of heart. This is not a, a five minute send an email and get a response back on on systems of record here. Absolutely not. It's um and certainly with new applications being maybe bought by the business being the SaaS application, that application will make calls on something else. And it's not just a case of buying that and opening up some connections to something else. You need to now understand what you're doing and why that's happening. And that involves bringing different groups together and using those applications in the cloud really still needs design. It still needs an understanding. It still needs the ability to map my applications running somewhere on the cloud is going to ask for data that may come from somewhere completely different, be it in the data center or quite often these days in another cloud. So you've then got to understand not only where the data moves from to maybe over whose network is it moving? And is that network got enough capacity? So there's a whole bunch of things in design that have never gone away. They just may be a little bit more hidden than they used to be or spread over multiple groups in a company. All right. So what you're saying is, first of all, um, uh, RPA, uh, putting robotic process automation in place, uh, still requires software development principles and rigor. Uh, of course it does. Uh, and, uh, and, it's, and it's not just to be put out into the wild and, and just let people kind of figure out. But you also almost, I think at this point, are painting a little too rosy of a picture. If, if all my problem is, is making sure I have bandwidth from Azure to AWS, that's not a hard one to solve for. But you gave an example when, when you were you know, kind of getting after me on, on where we missed it. And it's a great example is, is I said, okay, make it tangible for me because I need that. And you said retail. What if it's a retail example? Take us through that. So retail has been a great one, especially with uh, COVID, when many people move from bricks and mortar shops to online shopping. All of a sudden, instead of having many of your customers going into a shop, you've now got all those customers looking through a browser, looking at an online e-commerce system. That e-commerce system now has got to go back through some middleware, which is processing in the middle, back through maybe uh, an intermediate application, back to a database running on yet another machine. And the customer may have a problem with poor web, web website performance. And a monitor might pick up that the web pages are running very slowly. But ultimately, that problem could be a database somewhere back, all the way back, that can't service requests fast enough. And unless you can trans translate the website running slowly back to a database somewhere that doesn't maybe have enough CPU or is poorly configured for concurrent threads, how do you know what to fix and where to fix it? And the point is you need to draw that distinction between someone driving a keyboard or looking on a mobile phone to actually where that data comes from and what components deliver that data to the front end and the various issues that that may face in terms of volume or load. Simon, you said a word I didn't think I was going to have to hear again, middleware. 
Aren't we beyond middleware? But then you use scarier words than that. And that is, you you were kind in this one, where that middleware was pulling out of a database. What if that database and the data system of record very often uh, is coming out of, no one's looking, a mainframe? Well, unfortunately, there's still quite a lot of them around and they're not going anywhere fast. So there often is still a mainframe at the back end of all this, buried away, humming away, just working with 30 or 40 year old code and databases running on it. Uh, it's still part of that end-to-end IT chain. Well, and it, it, that does really go to a part of the article that I thought caused well or called out well, and that was that RPA, the, the, the folks who are creating those solutions really don't exist in a vacuum. Um, but where the, the goal is that you now have, we'll call it an 80-20 rule, where 80% of the work is it can be done through that WYSIWYG editor, but 20% requires real software engineering, new code, new interfaces, new APIs. And and if this is being approached with true rigor, then that's where we're going to send our 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 well seasoned developers to go out and make sure that these interfaces are working well. But the fear then becomes that happens right the first time, and now it becomes legend in the organization that hey, I know an interface you can go hop on if you want to, you know. Uh, the folks are sitting next to one another, creating new processes, new bots. Um, and now that one interface that was built for application A is serving B, C, D, all the way down to Z. Yeah, all the time. And that's it. Once something's developed once, de- developers are naturally, lazy is the wrong word, but developers will go, something's written. How do I reuse it? And it may be for nothing to do with the original intent it was created, but it provides the right level of data. So 14 other applications may all of a sudden be consuming that data in ways you never envisaged when you wrote the interface. It could be much higher bulk for what was an individual query that could be used to populate something which essentially might have been in the old days run by batch, but it could be a stream of thousands of queries on an interface designed for one a minute, having 10,000 a minute because someone suddenly wants to bulk move data into an elastic search on AWS, for example. So you've got that problem that what something was designed for over time gets corrupted by use because it's there and easy to use rather than writing a new interface. And that needs to be understood and mapped to know that if I'm suddenly going to get 20 queries rather than one query or 20,000 queries instead of one, does my backend cope? Am I doing the right thing? Have I actually not designed it? I've just inherited it. And, uh, and it really brings the point out that just because we have these new technologies that come along, it doesn't mean that we have to get rid of the rigor or the, the activities, at least all of them, in, in the past. For instance, we just talked about we still need developers and we still need rigor and we still need software development principles and, and all the things that go around that. But what we also need is to understand how these resources are ultimately being used over their lifespan. So to your point, something that was developed for somebody to do some internal querying now is trying to feed an elastic search inside of AWS. These don't map. And what we might do initially is put some internal um, monitoring on that interface, but not have the right correlation to know who everybody is who's consuming that thing. Um, so, so, so understanding that. But then lastly, I think it takes us back to something we can't get away from, and that is effective application portfolio mapping. Yeah, 100%. If you don't know from the front to the back where where your data is being moved from disk to screen, if you will, and all the systems it passes through and at what volume, what pace, what velocity, if you will, of that data, if you don't know that and understand it, how do you map and correlate a problem in the website or a problem in the e-commerce system 
or in banking a problem in a branch maybe with where that data is originally sourced from and know a if something goes wrong where in that it chain it's gone wrong but more to the point how do you direct the right robotic process to make the necessary change that may manifest itself as a problem in one place but the source of that problem is somewhere completely different and i think the key for me then is you're not treating the symptom you're treating the cause mm. and that mapping helps you look for the cause well what a great point all right so i think we've we've driven the point home that just because there's new fancy tools it doesn't mean we have to abandon the right pr the principles of the past we may implement them differently but we can't abandon the the principles of the past but another area we sort of glossed over in the article was the ease at which some of these uh, uh robotic process automation bits can go into production uh, hey, somebody can just sit down in an editor inside of a browser and drag some things together and we're going to save tens of thousands of man hours. I mean, that's equivalent to Seinfeld, you know, yada, 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 uh, I got a new car. Because uh, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. The yada, yada, yada has got to be filled in and oftentimes that's hundreds or sometimes thousands of, of man hours understanding the process. So we've talked about the, the, the data chain, the process of the, of the application, but there's also the process of the business process and understanding. And, and in my experience, what I found is that's one of the areas that is the most not misunderstood or not understood in an organization. And what does it actually take to do the process and who does it? So if you think two ways to that problem, Many organizations now are hiring chief data officers more than ever before. And why are they doing that? Exactly to your point. This is about the business process and the business data. Where's the master data for uh, a, maybe an account number where, or a customer number or things like that? Understanding the data, where it originates, where the master of that data is, how that data flows and moves around the various systems, especially when the business may buy a SaaS application to do one particular function now, but they connect back to a legacy mainframe, as we talked about before, or a legacy SAP system, maybe. You've got to understand where that data is and map it all together. And what, what's happened now is by buying a SaaS solution, people don't necessarily know where the master of their data is or more to point why it's the master. And you end up with copies of copies. And I've heard the phrase used, you need to create and have a data fabric. And ultimately, the fabric of your data is the map that looks at where data sits and moves. And I really equate the fabric to a map because you need to know if you're going to make a journey, where you start on that journey and where you end and the roads which you traverse, be it A roads or big, fat, wide auto routes or motorways because of the data and its velocity and its volume. You need to understand all of those elements. Yeah, that's so true. Because we go back to that business process, you know, when when we put these tools in place and we train up some people to know how to do it, and then uh, and then the line forms to, hey, I've got a process we think could fit for this, and we say, okay, tell tell me about the process. Just walk to a whiteboard. In fact, that's what I would always do when and this is early in the SharePoint days when people wanted to to start playing with <laughs> it. But I would say, okay, do me a favor before we. start sit at a console, take this whiteboard and just draw all the people and all the things and all that have to happen in this for it to be successful. And I'll say, by the way, don't just bring yourself as somebody who wants to get this done, bring those business people, bring, bring everybody in the chain. I would schedule the meeting for an hour. Uh, I would kick the meeting off. I would get it started. 
They would draw the first two hops. Then I would usually then leave or at least bring a book because then they would just argue because nobody knew. And then uh, they realized I'd say, okay, well, the uh, point made, uh, I'll see you in six weeks, figure this out. And then we can figure out how to put, put tooling around it. Uh, Cause that can tend to be the hardest thing to figure that part of it out because there's, first of all, nobody really understands the whole process. And the process is fraught with corporate legend, I like to call it. Things happen for strange reasons. And because they happened that way before, and it's the way we always done it, it's the way we always continue to do it. In fact, there's this, there's one example I always go back to, and that is, by the way, this one person, Bob. Bob was in charge of doing this one process, but he would only do it Monday through Thursday. And when we started to press him on why only Monday through Thursday, there's more days in the week. He would say, well, that's, that's how Jane taught me to do it. Well, all right, where's Jane? It's fine, Jane. Jane, why did you do this? You got promoted, but why'd you tell Bob to only do it? Well, that's because that's the way Becky told me to do it. We go ask Becky. Well, Becky, why did you only do it? Well, I only work a half a day on Friday and I didn't have enough time, so I wouldn't only do it then. So I, that's how I trained everybody. So because of somebody's work schedule, for whatever reason that was, it became legend of we can only process this thing on Monday through Thursday. That's very true and very common. And I think... I think the other the other part of that is often these um, approaches are passed down through word of mouth and never documented either. So what they know, no one looks at. Well, why does that person do it? Or what what transactions does it impact? What part of the business does the business only work Monday to Thursday? What about a Saturday? And I think through COVID, especially now, where twenty four by seven is expected always on, all of a sudden those processes you might run, you know, eight till eight Monday to Friday. Um, themselves maybe need to be run at the weekend. So the business change as well as the people process have now actually changed the way those things need to run and operate. So the the hours of operation have massively changed to when you want to run something. And people need to understand that rather than just urban urban legend in terms of, well, I only run that process on a Monday to Friday because, or a Monday to Thursday, or even only on a Wednesday afternoon, because Wednesday afternoons when we used to do the batch tidy up and the printing. Right. Now that might any day of the week so you have to be prepared to be way more flexible and i think that's where you might see that event now on a monday you might see it on a friday night you might see it at two o'clock on a sunday morning when in the old days that event only occurred or that problem only occurred on a wednesday afternoon well, it starts to peel apart the art of the possible. And this is where optimistic Jeff starts to get really excited, even though I've had all of these experiences over the past 15, 20 years of, of these failures of understanding the process. I still hear the promises of, hey, now we can do this thing, not just Monday through Friday or Thursday or uh, whenever, 24 hours a day, we can scale infinitely. And then I start to get excited and I start to sell it that way. You know, if, if you know me, you know, in life, I tend to be a very optimistic person and that translates sometimes to my detriment inside of the organization. Hey, RPA, Rackspace, we're going to save thousands of hours. Yay, but it's going to take hundreds of hours to create some of these solutions. Don't think that because we've moved to this, that we remove all the time to create an effective enterprise scale solution because it needs to be dealt with and it needs to be cataloged and it needs to be part of the system of record and the application portfolio, even though it is one tiny little bot. <laughs> That's so true. And I admire your optimism, Jeff. I, I share it, but I also share the understanding that having been at the other side of the fence, the hard work that actually when the hard work is successful, you deserve all the optimism you've got in the world. And I think you earn your optimism. You don't have it by right. <laughs> That's a great point. But, you know, if we think about uh, RPA, and RPA is a great example of the changing face of IT. And 
Um, there are a lot of examples, but I think this is a great one because it talks about how we can take people who are sitting out in the business, in some cases doing an extraordinarily mundane job, and then turn them into very effective people who are making massive transformation with IT tools in the organization. It blurs these lines. We, we used to live, I, I used the example before, where, where we had this nice wall between the business and IT, and then IT talked to partners. Um, but more and more, you've got these business users who are smart, who are now starting to burrow around and chisel holes through the wall, trying to find sources of data. Uh, that's very, very common. And you think about how many Excel spreadsheets suddenly have introduced SQL commands that pull out of databases all over a company. And each one of those things is a little hole in a wall that maybe no one knows about. And you have to be really careful if you have too many holes, the wall falls down and it's anarchy. So you need to understand for me why those holes are created, to what end, and what's the impact of drilling a big hole? And is it a small hole with a little two millimeter drill? Or is it a whacking great half an inch wide, inch wide, several inches, big, big tunnel cut through to pull and move lots of data. And that's the real difference in terms of punching the holes in the wall. You need to know what's the impact of doing that. Well, and isn't that go back to the point that you made earlier about companies getting chief data officers who are now going to design an effective hole that won't take the wall down because the wall does have import, um, but will then be cataloged, mapped, and will understand and sustained and monitored and all the things and secured. Let's not forget the, the, the secure word because uh, that's sort of important too. Uh, we don't want somebody just chiseling through and pulling data out that they uh, and, and sharing it in ways that aren't, that aren't secure because that is our biggest concern these days. Uh, absolutely. Um, security was going to be one of the points I mentioned, because ultimately, the more the more holes you create, it's just like a it's just becomes more like a sieve than a wall, I think. And water and data pours through that. And you do really need to know where all those points are for a security point of view. And, you know, if I was a CISO, the first thing I would want to know from my chief data officer is where's my potential exposure? Where's my data going? Where's my company crown jewels in terms of data? As most com companies, you know, the data is everything. Knowing where that is, where it goes, where it traverses, and at what frequency or volume is, is something that a CISO now is massively interested. So if you're mapping it, you're actually not only helping the business, you're helping keep the company secure as well. Isn't it fascinating how the roles of some of these folks have changed over time? You think of somebody who was in charge of data before, it meant they looked after databases as opposed to how do we, how do we map and share and, and make available. We think about a CISO and their job was how big and strong can I make the walls? And now it's a, they're an enabler. They're absolutely enabler. In fact, if they're doing their job right, it becomes a marketable thing for the organization to talk about how secure they are over their competitors. Um, I heard a word yesterday. I was talking to an analyst and they used the term, which I thought was brilliant. And it's, it's absolutely added to my lexicon of, of words. And that is digital fluency. As the digital fluency uh, increases across the organization throughout all aspects, marketing, sales, finance, everywhere, people are able to do more. It's incumbent then on IT and speaks to the changing face of IT to be able to enable those folks in a secure, available, monitored, all of the all of those ways. Uh, digital fluency is an interesting term. The, the problem I would say and the challenge is um, both business and technology need to be fluent in the same language. Yes. It, it's all very well if business speak French and all, all the IT people will do is speak German then you've got an interesting challenge. So fluency, it's imperative to marry the language of business with the language of technology. So you're both speaking the same language 
and there's no room for misinterpretation. I think that is a really key part. And it's incumbent upon technologists to learn the language of the business to make sure that actually you're not translating or mistranslating something. My gosh, Simon, that is an amazing point. It's not just about being able to speak a language, it's about to be able to speak the language. And and again, changing face of IT. Uh, how does uh, uh, IT now, um, you're really influencing, you're technical influencing. How do we make sure that everybody understands what's not just what's available and how it's monitored and secured, but how do we refer to these things? What do we call a system of record? What do we call a customer? What does that customer get referred to in the code? How are we calling that right, right bit? Because it's not just about, to your point, being fluent in a language, it's about being in the fluent in the language of the organization. Incredible point. And I think, I think the way technologists win the business over or keep them on side is you have to be prepared to step out of our house into their house mm. to do that. And you, as long as you step into their world, they'll be very relaxed in discussion. You'll firstly learn a lot more, but also you can get over why these things are important. And it's not just IT told you so you have to behave this way. It's actually, it's important for your, your growth, your security, your ability to explore new opportunities if we converse in the same language and you understand not only the art of the possible, but more importantly as well, sometimes where the constraints are, and it's not just a technologist saying you can't do that, it's explaining it in a way that how it might inhibit their business or not work with the velocity they need for what they want to do. And I think that synergistic nature between technology and business now, it's imperative to keep that and maintain it so that actually you work collaboratively, not adversarially. Well, and us in IT are oftentimes go back to the old days. We were just no factories. Here we want this new shiny thing. No, uh, we'll give you a reason why, but no. But if we're truly partnered with the business, then when we hear what's happening is is we'll even change position. We won't be at a point where we have to grant permission. We will be at the point and have a seat at the table where we will be offering solutions in real time. And I think no better is there an example of that than what we did with, with COVID. Imagine a world where IT was completely segregated from the business and IT started throwing work at home solutions over without understanding how work in the different aspects of the business actually occurred. I mean, I think because this transformation was actually going on, it made that transformation to work from home so much more possible. Uh, it did. And I think also what happened is because IT and the business talked more, um, the business got a better appreciation of risk as well, where things that people said no to from the business side, because it was a technology change. Now there was like, well, how risky actually is that? So the conversation changed enormously is that we've got to do it now. What's the risk of doing it? So the conversation actually changed entirely. And I think from what I've seen in, again, in UK retail, um, is this people have said, I've done five years transformation in five months now, because I actually better took the time to understand the level of risk that transformation made, or more importantly, the risk of not doing it. Yeah, they did a yeah. So the whole appetite and attitude towards risk changed. And that was down to the fact that the business and IT had to be smashed together because technology had to solve a business problem such as COVID and remote working as the example you've given. And all of a sudden by collaborating, it was, oh, it's not as bad as we thought. We can really do this with making these few changes. Whereas before it's like, well, I'm not changing those things. Now it's, okay, what can I change rather than no? So the conversation dynamic has changed enormously. Yeah. And I hope it post-COVID as well. Yeah, and, and and for me as a technologist and, a, and somebody who gets so excited to see technology push people and businesses farther forward than they could have, 
it's the best time to be in IT. We have still so much more work to do, but it's a great time to be in IT. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. And it's really interesting the conversations I have daily or weekly with customers. They want to explore things in a completely different way. And I think they're much more open to listening to new ideas that before they would go, oh, that's a crazy technologist. What's he doing? Actually, they've got an appreciation that actually if we collaborate and those crazy ideas may not be quite so crazy. Yeah. Now, now we here at Rackspace, we love our partners and we love them all equally, of course. But I'm going to call out Microsoft for a second because I think that they, from the top down, um, really have a, a strong aspiration. If you look at their mission, their mission is to help every person and business on the planet achieve more. That has nothing. They don't, they don't use the word technology in their mission statement, which is fascinating. Yeah. And that's exactly the pivot we've talked about. That's yeah. the whole point, isn't it? It's about empowering and enabling people. And that's crucial. It's the way forward. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. Well, thank you, Simon, for coming into the virtual studio here and uh, not necessarily helping set the record straight, but help tell the whole story. Really appreciated having him on. Now, it's my pleasure to get to continue to thank Dell Technologies for being a sponsor of this podcast, as well as the entire Solve program. You know, that article that Simon had to come in and uh, have a little chat about? Well, it's over on solve.rackspace.com, as well as a bunch of other ones. All thanks to Dell Technologies. Now, next week on Cloud Talk, I'm really excited because it's going to be the second installment of our tech behind the industry. And in this one, we're going to go behind the music industry and talk about how technology has helped to completely revolutionize not only the way music is made, but the way it is secured and the artists that are impacted along the way. I'll be talking to people in Nashville, Tennessee, entertainment lawyers, producer, as well as a guitarist out of London, England. Until next week, I'm Jeff Deverter with Cloud Talk.